Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revs are wrapping up a successful week where they took all six points in a two-match week. They opened the week with a 4-0 win uh, against the Vancouver Whitecaps, which saw a beauty of a goal from Gustavo Bo on his debut. Uh, and then the week ended with a 2-0 win in the Revs' first trip to Cincinnati, a game which New England controlled throughout uh, the Revolution are now 10 games unbeaten in MLS action since the firing of Brad Friedel. They have won five of their last seven MLS matches, which is uh, since Bruce Arena took over, and they are currently occupying the seventh and final playoff spot in the Eastern Conference standings. Uh, joining me today, I'm Greg Johnstone. Joining me today is Jake Katniss of the Bent Musket. Jake, how's it going? Finally, the Yukon Huskies are back in the Big East. We're tired of your shit, Providence. We're coming for you. Yes, uh, we haven't had you on in a while, so that, that might be a little bit of old news, but uh, that you've had that uh, pent up. And as someone who had, was a mini-pack uh, ticket holder for PC basketball, I actually am excited about the PC-UConn basketball rivalry reigniting. So you won't miss the civil conflict with UCF at all, Jake? Uh, we still that – is, that is actually still my, one of my favorite uh, subplots of our friends at the UConn blog of SB Nation. They are – actively trying to find out where the trophy is so that they can buy it <laughs> yeah good ha- happy hunting i'm sure it was uh, it's probably still sitting in that locker room uh also joining me today we're doubling down on the uh bent musket on the podcast today uh joining us right after an intense crossfit workout it's seth mccomber seth welcome back to the podcast it's been a while Hey, thank you. Uh, are we going to talk soccer today? Is it going to be about uh, basketball or whatever sport you guys are talking about? Well, we get, we're getting the UConn out of the way. Jake has it in his contract. We need to talk about Connecticut at least once uh, at some point in the podcast. And we're also just being nice to him because there's probably going to be a bunch of bow puns throughout our podcast today. Ah, and that's just going to drive him absolutely We nuts. have not yet reached critical mass on those yet. Yet being the opportune word. I don't know when it's happening. Might be another week. Might be set a little bit into August, but uh, get it all out of your systems now. I will return to full, you know, bow, booing, whatever form here uh, shortly. Yeah, are they saying bow or are they saying boo? Yes, that didn't even occur to me until just now. Thank you for that, yeah. one, Jake. No, that one, that one was that I was actually looking for the the uh, Montgomery Burns the gif, yeah. And I was I was hoping that someone would supplant one Mister uh, Different M Burns onto that meme, but no one's done that yet. Shame on you, Revs hashtag. I'm disappointed. I'm terrible at Photoshop, so I got to step my <laughs> meme game up. But Jake, as the most tortured soul uh, through all the uh, uh, bow puns, um, why don't you start us off? Uh, what's your key takeaway from this week in these past two matches for the Revs? You know, I, I think for me it was that two very different lineups. Uh, showed up and won games and and to be fair dominated games which is something we haven't seen New England do you have a bad team at home in Vancouver and a bad team on the road in Cincinnati and Bruce Arena comes out with two very distinctively different lineups and and setups and decides one day I'm going to have Bo as like a roving 10 the other one I'm going to have him as a set striker uh, Diego Fagundes is now a holding midfielder. Um, uh, Carlos Gill can play out wide on the wing. 
nothing Bruce Arena has done or said in the last couple of, of weeks uh, prepared us for perhaps the combinations of, of midfields that we saw. Uh, and they, I think they, they played similar yet different. Um, and I, I think midweek, um, I think it was Bobby Warshaw and, and Matt Doyle were talking about what formation were the Revs going to play? They were thinking, you know, 4-1-4-3-3, stay with the 4-2-3-1, and they both thought, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, because the the way the Revolution are setting up and the way that they're passing and possessing the ball with purpose has been uh, been a revelation under under Bruce Arena, and we just saw two different ways of it lead to six points uh, this week. I thought it was just so interesting because um, we've seen Arena throw so many different lineups um, personnel-wise, but also just like the way it's set up. He just hasn't found necessarily the way he wants to set this team up, which makes a lot of sense because I can't imagine he was doing a lot of in-depth analysis of the Revs before he got the job here. Um, so it's kind of cool to watch a coach think about on the fly how he's going to put his pieces together and not only think about it, but continue to get results. So mm-hmm. it really speaks to the quality of coach that Bruce Arena is. Uh, when Bo came in, I, I highly expected him to play on the left-hand side because it just made sense that way. Um, and we did see that midweek. But we saw him play out wide but float inside quite a bit and roam everywhere. Like, yes, his starting point was that left-hand side, but he wasn't playing the left-hand side like a Pania would. He was coming in quite a bit. And then later in the game, we saw him go to the right-hand side. And we saw him in the middle. So it was really cool to kind of see um, – Arena play with those pieces so well and still get results. And, of course, the, the second game of the week, we saw Bo play uh, more as a number 10. And then we saw Carlos Hill play as a right midfielder, but really never occupy that, like, wide right area. He was more kind of floating inside and being that attacking player, which allowed that space for Bai to overlap. So it's just kind of cool that, like, we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, a, a talented soccer mind at work. And not only is he is he trying to figure out what works best for his team, but he's still getting results. I mean, we see so often, you know, hey, trust the process. I don't know if anyone watches the U.S. men's national team. The idea of, you know, trust the process. We have to put these things together. We're seeing development as we go, which is great. You know, you, like, you know I'm, I'm making that as a joke. You can't really probably compare these situations that well. But to see Bruce Arena come in and play with his lineup and try different tactical, you know, makeups and put players in different places and challenge them, you know, Diego Fagundes playing that, that um, further back role, it was kind of cool to see him uh, do that and still get results. Yeah, and I'll kind of tack on to what you said there about Diego, is that my initial reaction to Gustavo Bo coming into the side is that he can do a lot of things really well, and Carlos Hill can also do a lot of things really well. So, um, you know, it, this isn't necessarily a situation where we have one guy playing in the center and one guy playing on the wing and the other guy playing on the wing. I think we're going to see a lot of rotation and a lot of different matchups where, you know, sometimes Bo will be uh, out on the wing uh, and then other times they'll put in Pania on the wing and Bo will be playing a little bit more centrally. Uh, as you said, he'll play it a little bit more on the right side um, on uh, against Cincinnati. Uh, that's a little bit of a different role than we saw earlier in the year. Diego moving back a little bit, similar to kind of what Juan Agadello has been doing recently. Although I, I think that might be, not to, not to skip ahead to our, our Twitter questions, but I think that might be, a little bit more because of the matchup and because FC Cincinnati is more or less a glorified USL squad. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're a little bit able, they're, they're able to kind of get away with more of an offensive lineup uh, than anything else. But regardless, I think there's so much flexibility that 
uh, Bruce Arena can put out uh, a lineup of four or five really dangerous attackers and not get burned for it. So um, I, I'm I'm not totally sure if there's going to be a set lineup going forward, but there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of fluidity, uh, and there's a lot of people who are dangerous, uh, not just in the lineup but on the bench. So um, it'll be really interesting to see how the pieces come together and how Bruce Arena uh, makes it work. And so far, uh, he's passing the flying colors. So. Uh, Seth, do you want to go over to your uh, key takeaway from this game? Yeah, uh, I, I just think it's interesting that we're seeing that this team can be dangerous on set pieces. I mean, for such a long time, Reds would get corner kick after corner kick or free kick after free kick and really not be able to do anything with them. And this week we saw uh, the midweek game, we saw that outstanding bow strike. And it wasn't by accident. I mean, Bo recognized there was space there. He comes back. Carlos Hill yells to him. Bo yells back. And they make that connection immediately. Um, and he hits that wonder goal. And that was great to see. And then we see a more traditional type of uh, goal in the second game where Hill plays a short corner kick. He gets the ball back uh, from Pena. And then Delamea being, you know, a dominant force uh, scores a header, which I believe is the second header of the year off of a set piece. Uh, so it's kind of cool to see that this team actually can score on set pieces now. And I think it just comes down to the quality of, of Heal. I mean, Heal is a player who sees the game faster than anyone else on the field. <clears throat> now, you saw that earlier this year, and I was concerned earlier this year under Friedel because the players weren't making the right runs to get on the end of, of Heal's balls. Like You could tell that he was doing all this work. He'd get the ball, he'd play a through ball, but the players weren't making the right runs to do that. Now they're getting in the right positions to, to uh, receive a ball, get in behind, do all these magical things. And we also see that, you know, smartness on set pieces. He's willing to take a quick set piece. He's willing to play a one-two with a player. He's willing to, you know, play it to a player who can even hit a, 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 a you know, shot from the top of the box. There's all different types of ways that he'll can see the game. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we can see, see the Revs be an attacking uh, threat. I mean, we know that uh, of course, Zahibo has that height, but we'll, Delamea is also a guy who has a lot of passion. Can they continue to be that attacking uh, threat on set pieces? And if so, that's a pretty dangerous team. Yeah, I agree with uh, everything you said there. And usually the Revs are uh, Revs and their fans are kind of used to being on the other end of set pieces. I know we had our, it seemed like a five or six game stretch where set pieces were a, a complete disaster for them. Uh, but yeah, that, that goal uh, with Bo on Wednesday night where I guess it was on the fly, I guess that wasn't a planned play. It certainly looked planned where Gil kind of chips it and Bo volleys it into the net. Um, yeah, they, they certainly are uh, very dangerous. And even the play against Cincinnati where De La May heads at home, um, it looked more of a drawn-up play. Uh, but, yeah, uh, when you have a guy like Carles Gil, uh, he, it's, it's very dangerous, and he can really put a ball uh, wherever he wants it to. Um, that kind of leads into my key takeaway, and uh, that, that is that Carles Gil should be on the MLS All-Star team. Um, I understand why he was left off at the time. I don't think he was on the score sheet a, a lot that, that, you know, I, I think MLS didn't think he was contributing a, a whole lot just looking at his score sheet. Uh, and he has really made up a lot of ground, and I think that they need to retroactively add him to the team. Uh, he has seven goals and seven assists on the season. Um, that includes three goals and three assists in the last four games. He had a goal and assist in each of the last game, or each of the two games this week. Uh, since Bruce Arena 
took over, he has three goals and six assists in seven games, and there's only one game where he's been held without a point. Uh, so he is making an impact on every single game, and I think he's going to be dangerous going forward. Uh, it, it, it's not unreasonable to think that he's going to maybe not get an assist every game, uh, but he, he's going to be uh, torching defenses more and more because I found in the last two games he had a little bit more space. I think having Gustavo Bow on the field, um, especially against Cincinnati, um, you know, in the 50th minute, uh, that was the Carlos Gill shot that was just wide of the post. Um, if you watch that play, Gustavo Bow has a marker, and Gustavo Bow kind of moves out of the space in the center of the field, and it opens wide up, and Carlos Gill is, uh, uh, is, is completely unmarked. Uh, and so I think having Gustavo Bow. Uh, on the field. He's going to be taking away defenders. Uh, he's going to be a guy that needs to be marked at all times. And I think that's going to really open things up for Carlos Heel, who uh, at the beginning of the season, I think was frustrated and he didn't have quality finishing uh, at the beginning of the season, as he said, Seth. So I, I think that, you know, Gustavo Bo is going to be a major impact player, but don't forget Carlos Heel. And I, I think he's going to fill up the stat sheet uh, more than we realize. So I will say that Carlos Hill has been excellent for this team. He's probably one of the best. I mean, you can go through all the stats right now. He's leading the league in a lot of different categories. I'm not sure exactly all the categories off the top of my head because um, I saw him earlier because of Sean. Uh, I will say I don't agree with the idea that he should be an all-star. This also comes from Sean Donahue. Uh, he said that when the voting began, he had four goals and two assists, and the Reds were at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. And that, to me, is is. You know, the All-Star Game is a popularity contest, let's, let's be honest. And, yeah, we saw we saw the quality of Carlos Hill at that point, and some people were picking up the quality of Carlos Hill. But with four goals and two assists, and on a team that, that does not, you know, uh, get a lot of TV time nationally, does not, you know, get a lot of um, press nationally, I just don't think he should have been an All-Star. Now, uh, it would be great to have him be a part of that expanded roster so we can get that bonus. I'm sure he has some sort of bonus on there if he's on the All-Star game. But, like, when the voting began, he wasn't an All-Star. To be fair, it wasn't his fault because the pieces around him weren't there. But I think that there was better options out there. And also, um, the All-Star game just kind of like these big-name players. Like, you want to see Zlatan, you want to see Wayne Rooney, you want to see those types of guys because that's kind of the fun event it is. Yeah, you want to see a talented guy like Carlos Hill be like, marketed and put him out there as this is a guy who plays for the revolution that's a great thing um but i think it's more of a something for next year to aim for um now that he has those pieces around him bruce arena as his coach but i just don't see that he should be in this year's all-star game because when the voting began he wasn't necessarily putting up those numbers that said i know well wilford zahibo was a part of the team last year so still stealing my yeah yeah (laughs) who knows who knows who actually is going to make these types of rosters but i'm totally fine with him not having been on this, you know, being on this roster, especially because, you know, it's, it's all about the Reds making the playoffs this year. And, and does he need to play in this meaningless friendly? No, I don't think so. No, he doesn't need to. But I, I think retroactively, I think now that it, it was like he had the skill, but he didn't have the numbers to back it up. And he, I, I, as I say, I think retroactively, I think we need to get a petition going. I think we it's it's just the moral correct thing to do, Seth. He needs that recognition, just like how Wilfred Zahibo had his recognition last year. I know that Carlos Gil is not of a big name as Wilfred Zahibo, 
Uh, <laughs> you want the big names and Zahibo certainly. You couldn't walk around Boston without seeing a Wilfred Zahibo jersey. I know, I know. But uh, I think Carlos Gill definitely uh, uh, earned some recognition. And I, 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 you, all your points are true. Earlier in the season when voting opened, uh, the numbers really weren't there. Unless you were in New England, you, you didn't really understand the season he was having. So all very, very valid points. But uh, uh, Jake, you want to come in and play referee and uh, uh, you know give a grade on who, who's correct here? No, no. I, I mean, I, I, I think, I think everyone's correct. The, the, the All Star Game that that I preferred it to be at the beginning of the DP era, where it was still a lot of U.S. national teamers and uh, good MLS veteran types, with a few David Beckham's and those types. Now it's just every big DP makes more than five million. That's the game. If you actually want to win the game, if you actually want to go out and show Atletico Madrid that the league is actually good. You put Carlos Gill in this roster, and not only that, you probably start Carlos Gill, maybe even holding midfield. It doesn't matter. He's going to be awesome. He's going to make those players around him better. If you want to go out and sell a whole bunch of tickets and put Wayne Rooney at left striker with Carlos Vela and Zlatan and whatever it is and have no one protecting the back line and just six attackers and three center backs or whatever the roster is, uh, go ahead and do that. that that's, that's fine. Um, if you're actually trying to build a roster to win the game, you take guys like Gil, you take guys like Sahibo, um, you take guys like Dax McCarty, um, and, and players like that who are like, well, are these the best players in the league? No, but we're trying to showcase the league, not just the money we spend on it, uh, or the, the high DP players that get spent on it. So um, that's that's my whole take. If you're actually trying to win the game, let me know. I'll be far more interested. Until then, hashtag Attleboro for Atletico. <laughs> that also brings another question. I have a bit of a hot take, and you guys can shout me down if you want. I know that they typically bring in a team to have a friendly. Uh, would you? I mean, MLS, in my opinion, has grown to the point where I think they can go to an East-West game, or maybe do what the NHL did back in the day, where you do a North America versus World type game. Uh, and I think that too expands All Star rosters by two. I think there's it promotes the league a little bit more. It gets more big names involved in the game as opposed to a meaningless friendly, like you you said, Jake. Would you guys support maybe an East West game? Yeah, totally. I, I, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit over the idea of bringing in a foreign team, especially this year with Atletico Madrid. Um, the game still has tickets for sale, you know, in Orlando, and this is supposed to be something that usually sells out. That's supposed to be exciting. And Atletico Madrid doesn't necessarily have that same star power um, as a, a Manchester United or a Chelsea or something like that. So to me, I'd rather see it be a little bit more fun to have it East versus West and to have, um, you know, defense optional type of thing. Let's show off some of the talent. Let's bring on the nutmeg. Let's see, you know, like we're going to see the skills competition this year, which I think is awesome, which I think that Carlos Key would actually be really good at if he was invited to that portion of it. Um, so I think that part's fun, but to me, the, the all-star game itself has lost its muster uh, a, a little bit. I think it'd be more fun to have East versus West, or the other thing that's been thrown out is MLS versus Liga Emeki. Uh, I think that'd be kind of fun to see as well. So, yeah, I'd like to see the format change. I think that's a kind of a popular sentiment that's out there right now. I wouldn't mind seeing both games. I, why not do an East-West in, in November, like right around thanksgiving like the week before mls cup or something like that do a pro bowl type event mm. yeah exactly and just just say like you know hey right right before or even during one of the international breaks just go like you know hey we're gonna get everyone together 
will have like you know two team practices and just you know have a kick around and that's and then when you have a game that's like seven to six no one cares um but i think you could actually you know that would be a, another interesting way to sort of showcase things of you know hey it's the end of the year maybe we don't have some of the guys from you know um lafc or tom brady of the patriots or whatever because they're playing in the super bowl or mls cup but you can still have a way to showcase east versus west you don't have to do it in the middle of the year either yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's something that I didn't consider, and yeah, I, I I'm I'm kind of over the the friendly, like you said, Seth. I, I don't even really watch it anymore. I think I'd much prefer to see an East West team where I get to see some stars from the West a little bit more than I currently do. But uh, going back to Jake's point about the best players not necessarily being at the All Star game, we need to talk about another uh, guy that you need to have on your team if you want to win the All Star game, but is not going to the All Star game, and that of course is Matthew Turner. Uh, two clean sheets for Matt Turner this week. Um, he had seven saves in the game against Cincinnati, which brings him to a total of seven saves this week. Um, guys, Matt Turner, I, I think it's pretty solid that he's the number one going forward. Um, and, of course, MLS Team of the Week. Two clean sheets gets you on MLS Team of the Week. I, I believe it's the first time this season. I think it's his second time uh, on Team of the Week overall. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on Matt Turner? And is there any doubts in your mind that he's not the number one going forward anymore? Yeah, he's clearly the number one as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that's been my take from the beginning. Uh, even last year when he was benched, I don't necessarily believe that was the right move. I, I understand why he, that happens. You give like a young guy a little bit of a rest and say, why don't you focus yourself? But I remember back in the day, Kevin Hartman, you know, MOS legend goalkeeper said, with a goalkeeping position, it's all about getting those reps and working through those bumps. And if you throw me on the bench, I don't get those reps and I don't get that experience and my confidence starts to go down and you just have to, you, you pick a guy and ride with them. It's, it's different from like a field position where, you know, a guy's going through a cold spell, but you, you put him on the bench and bring him on the 80th minute to see if you can get him out of that, that rut. If you're Matt Turner, you're now on the bench, you're not getting any reps. Yeah. You're getting practice, but that's totally different. Like you, what Matt Turner needs now is more games. He needs to work on his distribution. He needs to work on, you know, uh, commanding his box on crosses. He is an athletic uh, freak. He's a very, very good at shot stopping, very good at making those acrobatic saves that um, back in the day Matt Reese could do. You know, like I always remember the, the, the debate between Matt Reese and Bobby Shuttleworth. Bobby Shuttleworth was really good about his positioning and getting in the right spots overall. He could make an athletic save here and there, but Matt Reese was the type of guy that, like, out of nowhere made a save that you didn't expect him to make. And that's where I see a little bit of that, that Matt Turner, that, like, you don't expect him to make a save, and then he does it. Does he still make mistakes? Sure. Is there things that get better? Yeah, absolutely. But you're talking about a guy who who spent most of his life not playing soccer, you know? And um, so you, I think you have to ride with him. I mean, at this point, does Brad Knighton give you anything that Matt Turner doesn't? He gives you a little bit of experience, but he's not going to be a long-term option for this team. And Cody Cropper, I think that it's, it's pretty clear that he's not – you know, the, the, the prospect, at least within the revs, that you, you'd hope to see. And obviously, you might have heard a little bit of the rumor. I'm not gonna, sure if we're going to talk about this, but we might have heard about this rumor of a Orlando, uh, Orange County, sorry, Orange County goalkeeper uh, leaving that club, uh, Patrick McLean, and heading over to maybe the Revolution, and maybe there being movement within the goalkeeping uh, ranks that way. But I don't see that. Like if this player does come in, I don't see that as a threat for, for Matt Turner. For me, it's Matt Turner going forward with Brad Knighton being that reliable veteran who can step in and provide some, uh, you know, provide some experience and provide some starts. 
Yeah, and I just want to touch upon the Patrick McLean rumor, Seth, which I think you have. I I, I actually uh, tweeted that out because I, I was kind of following it last week. A couple of rumor Twitter accounts kind of indicated that there was some interest that the Revs had in this goalkeeper, and I did not pay a whole lot of attention to it. And then two days later, he was released, and there's a podcast uh, by Orange County supporters uh, that, that kind of indicated that there are a number of MLS teams interested in McLean, including the Revolution. That would seem to imply to me that they would move a keeper. I can't imagine the Revs sign a fourth goalkeeper. Um, but, I mean, it's been three or four days now. I was under the impression that it would be a quick-moving type of thing. So I'm not sure if that will materialize, but that's the full story in case you did not see it. Uh, and, and, Seth, I, I remember you tweeted on Friday that you checked and you can't play center back, which <laughs> it's it's not a need that the Revolution uh, – it's not a priority for them because – even if you have Turner as a first uh, team keeper, uh, as a number one goalkeeper, uh, Brad Knighton is a number two, and I certainly think that a lot of people would argue that Cody Cropper is a number two. Some people still think Cody Cropper should get a second chance at the uh, keeper position. But, uh, Jake, let's kick it over to you. you have any thoughts on Matt Turner and his two-clean-sheet week? No, I, I, I said earlier uh, um, yesterday uh, during the game, you know, we, we, I believe Seth had something on uh, – you know, Matt Turner, you know, should basically be the starter for the next X number of years, being that he's, you know, young and uh, you should let him work through those spells as, as you let Bobby Shuttleworth work through some of those spells. And um, 2014 Bobby Shuttleworth was, you know, arguably one of, you know, the best goalkeepers in the league. Uh, and maybe maybe he can't get, maybe Bobby couldn't replicate that form, but he could certainly get to that level. And I certainly see you know, Turner being a player like that, like, you know what, he's going to be pretty consistent and he can go on a tear where he's just going to be that good. Uh, and he is going to save you uh, of games. And, and I think uh, against Vancouver, you know, he, he didn't have to, you know, do a whole lot, uh, save an own goal, I think at one point. Um, but, uh, but against Cincinnati, like these were two games that, you know, New England struggled to put away and, and you need the goalkeeper to, you know, anchor and hold on to your leads as, be as best they can. You don't have the second goal against Cincinnati until the 55th minute. That game's still, you know, not in doubt. You know, you don't get the final three goals in Vancouver till the, you know, 80th, 82nd minute. So, you know, neither of these games are, are really closed out until, until, you know, Matt Turner, the defense stamped their authority on the game and, and, and close it out. And, and I don't think either of those two games were, you know, something where I'd write and go like, you know, yeah, those were those were sure wins. You know, we, we had that locked down start to finish. Yeah, they played pretty well. They possessed the ball really well. They, they attacked really well. But at the same time, it wasn't like, you know, Matt Turner had a lot to do in that Cincinnati game. He's got seven saves. That's a lot of shots on target uh, for a team that's supposed to be bottom of the East and is bottom of the East. Uh, I know it was zero official saves against Vancouver, but I feel like he he had more big moments in the Vancouver game because the bulk of it was was one zero, and and I feel like that's important because you know New England for several months this year we're losing two or three to nothing, and you didn't notice Matt Turner's contribution as much because it it didn't matter. The defense was so bad, the goals were going in so often, uh, and it's nice to see that uh, a confident Matt Turner um, you know is back and and. You know, the, the whole Mike Lapper, you know, you're my guy comment. I still think that could be the moment of the year for the Revs. You know, yes, signing Arena. Yes, you know, signing Bo. But, you know, Mike Lapper after, you know, firing head coach going, you know, hey, Matt, I'm putting you in goal. You're my dude. Guys, that is not to mention, uh, in 2014, the Revs had four goalkeepers on the roster. Uh, that is when they uh, sent Louis Softner to the Rochester Rhinos and brought in Larry Jackson. So if you are a Revs fan and remember uh, – 
Louis Softner and Larry Jackson, then you win uh, some sort of prize, I'm sure. Sean will give it to you next week. That is, I believe that's, I believe that's former uh, Shivas Goat Larry Jackson as well. RIP Zombie Goats. I believe, uh, yeah, I believe uh, Shivas is also a team, uh, a former uh, a team of Patrick McLean's. So there's a number of yes. comparisons going along here. I also am hoping that we get a Patrick McLean signing, even if it's just as a fourth uh, a keeper, just uh, and keeping along with the uh, Simpsons jokes, just because I, I want to make a lot of McBain McLean jokes. So that's what I'm hoping for. I And while we're talking about fourth keepers, may, I wish Sean was here because he would correct me. I'm pretty sure Matt Turner was kept on a roster as a fourth goalkeeper at one point when they were loaning him down to uh, Richmond. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I remember one year the season ended and I expected Matt Turner to be released and they kept him. I think it was the year they kept Shuttleworth as well. I think they had Cropper, Knighton, Shuttleworth, and Matt Turner, and I had no idea why they kept once Cropper was signed, they had four keepers, and I figured that meant Matt Turner was the guy out because he was unknown. And Matt Turner went from fourth keeper to now uh, one of the premier keepers in MLS. Yeah, what was the first? What was the first year they signed Cropper? Was that twenty sixteen? Late? That was twenty sixteen, I believe. Yes. Yeah, late in twenty sixteen. Yeah, right. There were four. They're right. There were four keepers. Yep. There you go. Also, um, Larry Jackson never played for Chivas USA. He was only a trialist. So if you actually think that uh, Jake knows a lot about Larry Jackson, he doesn't. Just saying. Whatever. I got, I got to say RIP zombie goats, which is that's that's my whole goal with Chivas. <laughs> that's all I care about. You know, th- this is how in-depth of a podcast we are. We're getting contentious over Larry Jackson. This is pretty amazing. <laughs> Yes, uh, it also should be noted, too, that Matt Doyle pointed out about the Patrick McLean rumor that McLean and Bruce Arena's time did overlap uh, a little bit, I think, at Chivas. And so um, there is a bit of a connection. Bruce Arena is familiar with him. And and Cody Cropper and Patrick McLean follow each other on social media, so they might be buddies. So just saying, I, I'm not saying that it's going to happen. I have no sources or anything like that. But it does seem that there are some ties to the Revs in some sort of fashion. That being said, McLean is 30. I can't imagine him dethroning Turner as the starter. I have no idea why the Revs would be interested in them. But anyway, enough about Patrick McLean. Let's move on to the one other player that was on the team of the week. That was Andrew Farrell. Obviously, no goals conceded by the Revs. A lot of credit goes to Matt Turner. Uh, also, a lot of credit goes to that Revs defense and that back line. A lot of people, including me and Sean, were a little suspect about uh, Farrell moving from right back to center back. We thought that was kind of out of need. Well, Michael Mancien has been 100% healthy, according to a bunch of videos the Revs put out last week. Mancien has not made the 18. Julia Laney Baba has uh, kind of been moved to the bench in the interim, and Andrew Farrell is still at center back, which implies to me that he is a starting center back for this team going forward, which is a bit of a surprise to me. I figured he'd move right back to right back when they were fully healthy in that um, area. So uh, that being said, he made the, the team of the week. Um, Jake, I'll go to you first. Uh, is Andrew Farrell now a center back? In my heart of hearts, I will always answer no to this question because 2015 pissed me off that much. I will say this, that I, I do somehow think currently the the Revs' best center back pairing might be Farrell and De La Maya. I don't know why this is. I feel like somehow De La Maya as a passer and an organizer is fine. Andrew Farrell gets to bicycle clearance things because he can, and, and it works. I think it also works because Brandon Bai hasn't had to defend a lot the last two games, and the the overall, the, the, the backline cohesion, platooning Castillo and Jones on the left side, the other three guys playing consistent. I think now that 
uh, arenas here and and the unit uh, as a defense is steady and I think it's a better understanding of what the rest of the team is doing makes that unit that much stronger. Um, I, I wish that a center back would be brought in so that Andrew Farrell could go back to the right-hand side and then you could do things like use Jones off the bench to cause chaos late in games, uh, which you can do with Jones as well or Buchanan. But I just I feel like I don't think Brandon Bay is a starter at that position and I think that Andrew Farrell is still your best starting option there because then it allows the left side to do the overlapping as opposed to Brandon Bay doing it, though he was very effective these two games against bad teams. No, I, I, as much as I love Andrew Farrell, and Andrew Farrell will go to war with, with anyone, just tell him where to go on the field, um, I still think his best spot's right back. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that we, we're seeing some tendencies where players will run in front, like run a diagonal in front of Andrew Farrell, and he won't pick up that. Um, there was one against Vancouver, and their, their rookie, 19-year-old rookie uh, forward, uh, Bear, Blair, something like that, uh, comes in front of him, and he then takes a one-time shot, and it ends up hitting the post. I mean, that's a, that's a run that you have to mark if you're a center back. So I do still see, think we're seeing some of those tendencies that he's not picking up on as a center back. That said, he's, he's doing the job right now, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. move him. I mean, uh, again, Sean Donahue posted some uh, stats that I didn't see that uh, basically showing that he'd be better off playing the right-back position over Brandon By, who I don't necessarily think is a, a good fit in that right-back position spot. But he's doing the job. I think one of the cool things that I'm seeing out of Andrew Farrell this year is he'd be becoming a leader. And you saw after some goals that he's bringing like, the guys together and saying, like, hey, guys, this is what we need to do. And he's rallying people and he's talking to referees. And it's really become clear that um, he was always one of those guys that, as a reporter, you could go talk to after a win, after a loss. It didn't matter. He's going to give you some real honest answers. So he's always that type of guy. But I feel like we're seeing him become that chiseled veteran right now. So um, I wouldn't really switch things right now. I mean, a 10-game unbeaten streak is great, uh, especially with, with, with Dale May coming back. Him and those two in the middle, I think, are, are very solid options that I wouldn't necessarily mess with right now. But I think going forward, uh, you're probably going to see him move back to right back. He works really well there. Um, has the speed. He was working on his crosses. His crosses got better, um, you know, in, in the, the later parts where he was over there as opposed to earlier in his career. Um, but right now, keep him there. Yeah, and you guys have kind of said what we've said in the past where we think Andrew Farrell is a more of a right back than a center back. But I think he's doing better than he did in 2015. Jake, you mentioned his, the season where he yeah. was trying to, they converted him. Um, I, I think he's doing a better job now than he was then, and he's certainly being a competent center back. So um, this is something that over time I think I'm being one-on more and more and more. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes and if they ever move him out. But, I mean, I, I kind of expected some rotation. I maybe thought on Wednesday that they would slide him over to right back or sit him and just kind of rotate guys in and out. We did see four, uh, a, a rotation of four new players in the lineup in Cincinnati, but Andrew Farrell was not one of them. Uh, he played both games uh, start to finish uh, at center back and did pretty well. No goals conceded. So it uh, should also be noted that as much crap as we, we give the defense, they have, I believe it's .8 goals against allowed in the last 11 games. Games. Uh, so their defense is on fire since the firing of Brad Friedel. Um, and and we, they certainly have some <laughs> difficult games coming up. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see if their defense goes reverts back to its original form or if they're able to keep the hot streak going. So 
just a couple of other players I want to kind of touch on. Uh, you guys can jump in if you, you have any thoughts. But uh, Christian Pania is kind of back in form after a slow start to the season. He had two assists against Vancouver off the bench. He has three assists in his last four appearances and one goal and four assists in his last seven appearances. So he seems to be uh, doing well. He, he certainly made his presence felt uh, against Cincinnati. Uh, and then the other person I wanted to mention uh, is that, you know, we're, we're giving a lot of compliments to this team. There's a lot to be uh, positive about. Uh, Juan Fernando Caicedo had a bit of a difficult game on Wednesday. Uh, two really, really nice chances um, that were not finished. That really, that's the only reason he's there. It's the nine. Um, and I, I was listening to Extra Time Radio earlier today, and Charlie Davis was on. Charlie Davies was on the podcast, uh, and he, he said something to the effect of, "I think Caicedo is done." Uh, and so I don't know if he has any inside information, but I think Caicedo's performance on Wednesday, uh, we might see some limited minutes from him going forward. Uh, and, and also we were talking about kind of the flexibility of each player. Caicedo is really not flexible. He can really kind of only play up top and finish chances. Uh, so I, I'm interested to see if we uh, see any more of him in the future uh, or what his situation is. So I also listened to Extra Time Radio uh, earlier today. And let's remember that Charlie Davies' best friend is Teal Bunbury. And Charlie Davies <laughs> totally believes that Teal Bunbury is best as a number nine, which, to be fair, Teal Bunbury is absolutely on a streak right now. Um, he is doing very, very well. I think you could play him on the wing. You could play him up top. I, I think he's honestly been doing better on the wing because he has that speed. And I think we saw that, um, how he can use that in that play where, as the number nine, Casado jumps up and flicks that ball onto Teal Bunbury, who then runs in behind and scores a great goal. Um, I think that Teal Bunbury can play as a nine as well. We saw that in the later part of the Vancouver game where he uh, you know, receives the ball and then t- has a turn and scores a goal. Um, so personally, I-, I agree that probably at this point, Juan, Juan uh, Fernando Casado goes back to the bench, especially with all this attacking and talent around. I mean, if, if Pena's doing well... You want to try to get him out there. That also opens up. That you also have Bo that's out there now. Carlos Hill that's out there. Okay, where do we put Teal Bunbury, who yes did not score against Cincinnati, but has played very well. Okay, you put him at the nine. Uh, but I honestly don't think this is the last we see of, uh, of Jay Casado because he he has the skills you want to see from a number nine. Is he quick enough? No. Is he sharp enough? No. But he has those types. I mean, even against that game against Cincinnati, he makes the right run to get it behind, and then he's, like, too slow with the ball, and the t- the, the chance doesn't uh, work out, you know? So he has those skills that you want as a pure number nine, and I don't think that Teal always has those skills as a pure number nine. He doesn't always bring the ball down as cleanly as you like. He doesn't always, you know, hold the ball up as cleanly as you like. Um, so I can see games where they're like, you know what, we're going to play Casado as a number nine. All he's going to do is battle with center backs, try to win the ball, and then try to, you know, connect with these other types of players. Um, and I think that in the game against Vancouver, we saw some really nice, like, interplay be- between Casado and Bo and Heal and, and Bunbury, some nice passing that was happening. Uh, I I, I I've, I've kind of made that, like, my, my hill to die on, that, like, Casado is, you know, Jay Casado is not as bad as people think he is because he has certain skills. I'm not a huge fan of him by any means, uh, but I, I think that there's, I think there's uh, t- a talent there and there's natural instincts there that make me understand why they brought him in. You know, early on this season, like during preseason, I was like, what is this? This guy just runs funny. What's the deal with this guy? Yes, he runs funny. Yes, he falls down a lot, but he has some of those skills that you want to see. 
he just has to be sharper. He has to be cleaner, which, you know, probably is not going to happen this year. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, even if he goes on this giant tear, he's not coming back next year because he's making, you know, pretty substantial money and he's on loan. But I think there's games where he can still come in and potentially do a job for this team. Yeah, it's, it's not so much that we hate. I don't hate JFC the player. I hate JFC the contract. Um, I, I think JFC is going to be a valuable asset to the Rebs down the stretch, even if that's off the bench as a target, a true target nine, uh, just closing out games. Uh, the Revolution have, have really lacked great options to close out games. And in the last couple of days, you've seen, because of the versatility and depth that they now have, you know, Pania coming off the bench, causing havoc. Uh, JFC coming off the bench, getting fouled a whole bunch of times, slowing down the game. Uh, Scott Caldwell coming in and doing Scott Caldwell things uh, as he's been doing the past couple of months. I wish we get Scotty some starting minutes, but that's a different argument. He's pretty um, solid. One minute that he comes in at the end of the game. Yeah, it's, I mean, I you know, but Diego was so good at the at the at the kind of sort of six role that it didn't really matter. I was like, well, I, you could have put Scotty in ten minutes earlier, but Diego's doing really well. Um, but I, I look at now, you, you know, Arenas now. I think. In the tinkering part of the of his phase, going like, listen, we got a whole bunch of games. It's it's the you know summer. I'm going to be rotating guys in. What are some ways that I can rotate guys in and still make things work tactically? And I think you're going to have games where you're going to have, you know, Caicedo getting the ball 30 yards back to goal and just playing out with his wingers. Whoever's on the wing could be Bo, could be Gill, could be Teal, uh, could be Pania. Whoever is out there, it doesn't matter. Uh, he's going to be able to combine with them. And maybe you use him kind of as a different version of like a point guard. It's like, listen, we don't need you to score. We need you to set up the guy who's going to set up the other guy. Um, and then if that all goes wrong, you can clean up the mess. Um, the goal that Carlos Gill scored is a basically the same version where, you know, it was Caicedo who got in, had the ball, didn't really collect it for the shot, but battled long enough for Gil to just clean up the mess. I think those are the type of plays that Caicedo is going to be involved in and the goals that he's going to finish off. And that's still something that New England really doesn't have that kind of a poacher. Uh, Teal did that a little bit last year, but those are mostly back post finishes and and breakaway type things. There isn't really someone who's going to get into the box and, and score those like Wondolowski poacher goals where it's like, listen, the ball's bouncing. I got to it first. I kicked it in the back of the net. Um, New England's going to need a lot of those if they're going to continue this run up the table, and I think Caicedo's going to help in that department uh, tremendously. Yeah, I agree with uh, both you guys, and I think that's what made Wednesday's performance a little shocking is because Caicedo usually finishes off those chances. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I do think we see a little bit more of them, and, and Seth, I do think we see uh, more than five goals from Caicedo by the end of the season. Uh, but for now, he's still stuck on four, and uh, as I said, there's so many offensive options. Uh, maybe he comes off the bench in the next couple. So, Do we have uh, how many how many double-digit goal scorers could the Rebs legitimately have this year? This year? Yeah, could they could they get to three double digit goal scores? Um, well, Heel has seven, so he's one. Bunbury Teal has, has five. Teal's got five. Okay, I'd put Teal on there. So, do we think that Casado won't get there? I don't think Casado is. I honestly don't think he's that quality overall. But I think yeah. that he brings a, a skill set that can be really useful with a bunch of players who want the ball at the feet. It can, you know, move into different spaces and, and combine really well. And I, yeah, yeah so I don't think he'll get there by any means, uh, but I think they, there's still a value there for yeah. him. But I mean, like, I mean, Teal, Teal needs five more goals. Uh, JFC would need six. 
Panini and Aguilera would need seven, and Bo would need nine to the end of the year if we assume Gil gets the double digits. Um, but I, the fact that we can actually think, well, can can all these guys or can a handful of these guys get to ten goals? Um, and you know, we don't know if the Revs do still need that one top goal scorer. Maybe they can still do it by committee if you know JFC's adding another five assists. If Pania gets a double-digit assist, if Gill gets to 15 assists, you know, if, if you're, everyone's contributing on the score sheet, and it doesn't matter if it's a goal or an assist, that's where I think the Rebs are going to be dangerous if they do make the playoffs. Yeah, I just think there's too many goals to be spread around that I don't think a lot of people will hit double digits. Even Teal, I'm kind of iffy on. I think Carlos Teal is the only one that I am 100% set on. Uh, the rest of the way. So, and I don't know how many games are left, but we're I, we're, we're past the halfway point, I believe. So, someone would have to go on a real big tear. Bo would have to go on a tear, or maybe Christian Pena finds his uh, his touch. Yeah, you have, you'd have twelve games. Left. Yeah, twelve games left. So Bo would be scoring nine times in twelve games. It's I wouldn't say it's impossible, but that that would be very. It's a tough ask. Very very tough. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see I don't see Teal making it either. I think Teal's so uh, streaky. Just out of the list, though, Antonio Delamea only needs eight more goals to get to ten. So, just there. <laughs> well, well, uh, when he has Powell marking him, maybe he would get to ten goals. But, uh, let's move on to some listener questions, uh, real quick. Uh, Randy LH asks us about uh, Zahibo's performance. Uh, I just want to throw out some stats about. And we're talking about the Cincinnati game uh, since he was not playing on Wednesday, but he was forty-nine for fifty-eight passing. That's eighty-five percent. Fifty-six of those passes were classified as short, uh, but he wasn't dispossessed at all. He held possession the entire game. He had seven ball recoveries, eight for sixteen passing uh, in the attacking third, three for three on tackles, one clearance, and two for two on aerial duels. Guys, we uh, Sean and I talked a few weeks ago about Zahibo and his improvement under Bruce Arena. Uh, give me your assessment on uh, Wilfred Zahibo, and do you think he's going to keep it up? Now let's yeah. start with Seth. Sorry, I, I need to direct. I'm so used to just talking to Sean. I'm sorry, guys. I'm terrible. Yeah, I, I'm happy with him. I mean, uh, he's been doing well. The thing about him, he's always had impressive size, and that was one of the first things that Bruce Arena said um, in his first home uh, press conference after the game. He goes, you know, this guy has great size. He should be, you know, using that Bruce Arena snark, saying he should be winning more tackles given his size. And I think that he's he's stepped up. I think that he's taken that to heart and he's starting to win those aerial duels much more because uh, I made a point in the next game to watch it and he wasn't winning headers in the midfield. You know, and if to, to be a guy as a defensive midfielder that has that size, he should be winning every single one of those 50-50s and making them his own. So I think he's stepped up with that. He's worked better with his positioning. Um I think another thing that Reno likes about him is that he can hit that diagonal ball. I think you want him to be a little bit more accurate with that. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's working as well as you'd hope. It's not Jermaine Jones back in the day. Uh, but if he can hone that in, that's a really great weapon because um, when you have Agadello or you have Fagundes or, you know, ideally you have Luis Casado in there who's absolutely massive. Like, you know, he, he has such passion such art and plus he tucks his shirt in you know you don't, don't you have a defensive midfielder who tucks his shirt in so if somebody uh, you know pulls it out he can point to it and say dude it's a foul look he pulled my shirt out so you know prop to him for for going old school and you know tucking the shirt in but with Zahibo uh those other players around him are all about those you know little passes, you know, click the ball, keep the ball moving. And he's supposed to be the one to hit that diagonal ball that can unlock the defense. And he's just not as sharp as you might like with that. Um, that haven't been said. I mean, he, he can, he can do it. Uh, he has the range for it. He just has to be a little bit more accurate. So yeah, I mean, he's, he's played well 
better under Arena like everyone else on the Revolution, and that's a positive for the team. Yeah, I think when you actually when you go and you look at the the passing chalkboards for Luis Caicedo and and Zahibo, uh, you you pretty much see the only difference is that Caicedo, uh, Luis Caicedo, is getting key passes from those diagonal balls, and Zahibo isn't. And a lot of Zahibo's diagonals are very straight, very upfield, and towards the middle, whereas a lot of Caicedo's are out to the wings. And I think if if Zahibo refines that. Puts, his, puts more balls diagonally to the sideline. Because the ones that went to the sideline, a lot of those were completed. Um, and usually down the left-hand side. Um, I think we, it was very strange having seen him paired with Diego. Diego wasn't really there to recover the ball or recycle or things like that. Um, you know, that was that was Zahibo's job. So Zahibo was really the guy who, listen, I'm getting the ball back. It's either going diagonally up the field or it's going to Diego or someone else who's short. And then we'll begin, begin begin the break and begin our possession. Um, but like I said, I, I, I find it amazing that, that all, of all the combinations that have worked, I looked at Diego Fagundes and Wilfred Zahibo as a, as a holding midfield combo and just went, no, there's just, there's just, there's no way. There's no way this is going to work. And then you watch it happen and Diego have like a 90% day passing and Zahibo was solid, not spectacular, but he was solid. And you're just like, you know what? Maybe Bruce knows what he's doing. Maybe maybe we were right. Maybe we did believe in the right guy. You know, I just want to kind of touch upon, because we do. I'm going to skip ahead to another question. Mike Kennedy asked us thoughts on Fagundes' performance in a new role. So I, I'm I, well, on the backs of your comments about Diego, I'm going to turn this over to Seth. Uh, first, I'll throw out those numbers, because he didn't mention 90% passing. Uh, Fagundes was 39 for 43 passing. Again, the majority of those were short passes, or classified as short. 41 of those were short passes. But he was 6 for 8 in the attacking third. He had two ball recoveries, uh, no dispossessions, so neither central midfielder uh, uh, was dispossessed in this game. Fagundes also 1 for 2 on tackles and he committed three fouls all in the defensive third so uh seth uh what did you think of diego's new role yesterday and, and how do you think he did yeah he did, he did well i mean um he, he named all the stats that that show that he was solid in that position that haven't been said i think we have to remember that cincinnati they were playing a rookie number 10 uh, they were playing a maya and and you know i that's not much of a challenge to go against i mean it wasn't necessarily the most challenging game for the revolution, uh, especially in the middle of the park. They, the best chances I thought for Cincinnati were coming from the wings uh, because uh, and we see this a few times. The revolution are most vulnerable because they're playing a lot of their wingers more narrow so they can combine off each other. So whether it's heel coming in or bow coming in, they're playing a little bit more narrow, which allows for those you know, uh, left and right back to overlap. And we saw that a lot with Bye. Bye was getting forward a ton. So teams adjust by, you know, getting their attackers to play a little bit wider and try to exploit those areas. We saw that with uh, when they played against Houston. Houston, we saw that against Vancouver. We saw that against um, Cincinnati. Like those teams were trying to exploit those spaces, which then pinned back our left and right back. Uh, luckily, we have enough talent to, to attack in other ways and make things happen in other ways. Um, but it wasn't happening in the middle of the field. I mean, the Revs had the numerical advantage in the, the, the middle of the field to dominate those types of opportunities, um, and there wasn't enough creativity in that middle of the field with Cincinnati to really judge how good Fagundes would be in that role. And I, I feel like that for both Fagundes and Agudelo, that 
that were, they're not necessarily always being challenged a ton. But they're doing a good job at what they're doing, uh, but they're not facing the elite teams that have those attacking presence in the middle and that you have to really track all the time because they're getting into those spaces. You know, those really talented number 10s that move any, all the time, and if you're not paying attention to, to them in that split second, they, may, they, they punish you and do something dangerous. Because um, I think with Agadello and Fagunes, we see that they're not necessarily the best tacklers. You know, I mean, uh, when Agadella played that role, there was a time where he was in the box, it was a corner kick, and he pulled a player down, and it could have been a penalty. I mean, I think they were both, you know, jostling, they were both fighting, but Agadello and I think Fagunas as well, don't always have that mindset of, oh, I have to watch where I am because now I'm further back, and if I foul someone, it's going to be in a dangerous position. Fagunas did at one point, he... He, um, you know, tackles someone, and that foul is right outside the 18. That's a pretty dangerous foul to, to give. Versus earlier, you know, Agadello and Fagundes, they're usually so much higher up the field that if they commit a foul, it's not that big of a deal. So they have to be a little bit more careful, I think, when they're tackling. That's it. I mean, they're both doing fine in that position. I mean, Agadello and Fagundes have the skill set to, to move the ball quickly. And I think that's what you want. I think that's what they're being asked to do. They're not necessarily being asked to be an enforcer, to be a tackler. Uh, at times, they're going to be if they're going to be facing really talented lamps. But my guess is that maybe those aren't going to be the, t- the times that you put those guys in the middle. Maybe those are the times that Luis Casado and um, Zahibo are the guys that are patrolling that, that in front of that back line. Yeah, and I, I agree with everything you said. I think Caicedo and Zahibo is the kind of uh, st- starting line, holding mi- holding fi- mil- midfielder line there. Um, I, I do think it's a pretty big, uh, take this with a grain of salt, that Juan Agadello was up against a depleted Whitecaps team. There was no uh, Freddie Montero, and I think they completed something like seven passes in the attacking third in the first half of that game. There was really no offense from, or even any effort from the Whitecaps to generate any offense until they were down one nothing. Uh, and then Cincinnati, too, as you said, is not not exactly the best team uh, you mentioned Amaya he might be their best player uh, they really uh, have a lot of problems right now across that field so um, yeah I, I take it with a bit of a grain of salt but it is good to know that Diego Fagundes can go back there hold possession uh, and kind of mesh with the team and um, and, and should be noted first goal of the season uh, uh, on on Wednesday kind of put that game away uh, made it two nothing uh, in the late stages which um, Jake I know you talked about that game that, that was probably the closest four nothing game uh, you'll ever watch yeah uh, at one point the Whitecaps at the post uh, uh, when they were only up one nothing, so uh, he, he kind of put that one away. So really positive uh, week for Diego. It looks like he's going to be making the occasional spot, spot start somewhere around the field uh, and, and kind of fill in. So it's good to see him get a little bit of confidence back. Um, Cameron Young asks us, uh, what would be the ideal lineup after a pair of great performances, a lot of standout performances? Uh, and then Alex Welsh also says, flying so high, this team continues to do us proud. As of today, what do you guys think is our best possible starting eleven? Uh, so, Jake, I'm going to go to you. Uh, what is the best starting 11 uh, from the Revs? You know, I can lock down pretty much nine positions. Well, nine players. Um, left back, I'm going to say, is a 50-50. That's going to keep as a platoon. Um, I think the real combination is really how many true holding midfielders do you want on the field? What What is that question? Um, I think Teal is a starter. I think... Bo is a starter. I think Gill is a starter um, up front. And then you sort of have this weird combination of like Pania, Fagundes, Caicedo, Zahibo, and Scotty who are playing for like one wing position and either two holding midfield positions or a center midfield position. Um, if it were me, 
I actually think the Aguadillo as center midfield concept right now is the the best thing New England has. But the fact that they can pivot from, say, Diego on the wing to Diego as a holding midfielder and make that substitution now or that tactical change at halftime, having that as having that like proverbial golf shot in the bag is now something else where I'm gonna go like, well, you know, against a team like Cincinnati, who I thought was really late in bringing on, um, who was the striker that came on? Um, oh, Darren Maddox. Darren Maddox came in at the 30-minute mark. I'm like, where was he the entire game? Because I didn't remember Fernando Addy doing uh, anything um, in that game. And I, I thought that Maddox was the far more uh, a better attacker, at least in, in the final third, far more influential. Um, the fact that New England now, I think, is going to be able to have so many combinations either to start or to end, it's not so much that you have the right starting lineup. I think you have to have the right ending lineup of the game. And I think if, if Arena is consistently making good substitutions and good tactical changes when he needs to, um, that's where the Revs are going to be far more effective. I don't think you need to start the game with the best lineup. You sometimes might need to end the game with your best lineup. Seth, what are your thoughts? Uh, Turner in goal, Castillo left back. Uh, I like Jones, but I think Castillo is more accurate with the crossing. Um, he actually does pretty decent, especially winning the ball higher up the field. Um, I like Jones as an option because of his speed, because if you beat him once, you have to beat him twice. But I think you just got to have to ride out Castillo as the experienced guy um, as the first choice. Uh, in the middle, Delamea and Farrell. Uh, we'll see if Mancian can come back and, and challenge for that position. If he can, you move. Uh, you definitely move Farrell to right back and and uh, put Brandon Byer on the bench. Um, but at this point, I mean, it, it's it's kind of working. So you put those guys there. You put Brandon Byers right back. I'm not a big fan of Brandon Byer. I think that you know he, he's working really hard. I thought he was actually better with his crossing against um, Cincinnati, and I think the reason why is that you just put it low. I mean. Uh, that's what you want to do. Just put the ball in a spot where good things can happen. If you put it, you know, low on the ground, you put it, you know, below the shin, maybe it's an own goal. Maybe someone can kind of go there and, and, and hit it. Um, when you put it in the air, it's just much more difficult to, to measure and to place it right. So I like the low crosses. He had two that Teal Bunbury uh, should have finished. I mean, probably, you know, Jay Casado being that poacher in the front. He probably finishes them. But, you know, we'll talk about that again. <laughs> Can, can I just cut in real quick on By though, one second? Sure, yeah. I, I really think Brandon By is a right midfielder because he can shoot and he can do those low crosses, but when he's playing in the back and he makes his way up, there's really no chance for him to fit a low cross in because at that point the defense has gotten back. He's not going to be able to outrun the mid the defensive midfield back. It always seems like he's just pounding a low cross into the box. It's very frustrating because I, 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 I'm glad you pointed that out about the low crossing because I think that is a, a big skill that Brandon By has, and when he has space to put it on Till Bunbury's foot or JF Caicedo's foot, it, it's it's there. But I, it's, it's very frustrating to see like a Vancouver Whitecaps game where in the first 10 minutes, is Brandon by whipping in crosses through the air, which he's not great at, or doing low crosses that are you know going nowhere against the team that's bunkering. Uh, it, it's very frustrating. I will say the one thing that I've learned about or, or that I've looked into about why Brandon by is back there is he is pretty good in the air, and I think that's where they kind of value him. But everything else about your assessment about how Brandon by at right back is not really adding a whole lot. I agree with. So I just wanted to get those two quick points in there. Sorry, get to your midfield, Seth. Yeah, so again, I, I, I think that Brandon Baj is there out of necessity and that 
if Mancian can come back. I don't think Anibaba is the the guy that comes in the middle uh, just because he's healthy right now and, and Farrell's still, still there. Um, so, I'll, anyway, midfield, uh, I think it's Zahibo and Luis Casado right now. I think that they're working well together. You get a little bit of a height and you get that just, you know, absolute guy who works all the effort in the world and, and covers space. And, and I think that Casado is is – being used better now because he's not being asked to go hunting all the way up the field. You know, like before with the high press, the guy had to go hunting everywhere because he was the one that put in the effort. Now he's just being told, just protect the back line, dude. And he can do that much more successfully. Uh, in front of them, for me right now, I would go with uh, Carlos Heel. Um, I think that like you, you want him in the middle collecting balls because he puts in that defensive work. You have a nice little triangle that works between the three of them. Uh, that's very hard to penetrate because Heel and, and Casado in particular are going to put in all the work that you need to get behind the ball and win that ball back as quickly as possible. Uh, so I like him in the middle. Uh, right now I would put, I'd probably go with Pania out left, Bo out right and up top, uh, probably Teal Bunbury because he's in form. Or if you want to hold up striker, you go with Casado. Uh, and with, with Bo, he would have all the, the freedom to come inside much like we saw in the first game especially in the first half where he just kind of floating and just finding spaces and, and, you know, going out wide if he wants to go out wide, uh, but coming in. And I think for me, that freedom just to kind of start in the wing, but come in is nice for him because it's harder to track. And I think that granted, I mean, that's a lot of minutes for a new team, but I didn't think he looked as good in the second game uh, playing below the striker. Uh, and it might've just been, you know, a lot of minutes for a guy who just came in, or it might've been that it was just easier to track him in the middle versus if he's on the outside, he can kind of sneak in behind someone's back shoulder. Uh, he can cut in front of someone. He has a little bit, you know, of options of how to play. Um, that's what I'd go with right now. You could also put Bo on the right and Teal on the, the right, uh, sorry, Bo on the left and Teal on the right and put Casado up top and then bring on Pania as a weapon off the bench. Um, I think that, like Bruce Arena right now, we're just trying to figure things out. I think Bruce Arena, if you were to ask him right now on the podcast, he'd be like, I don't know. Like, how am I supposed to know after one week of, of no, having Bo in here uh, what his best position uh, is going to be? So I think it's going to be kind of fun to watch what happens over this next few weeks. Yeah, he'd, he'd snap back and he'd, what do you, what do you think? He'd, he'd turn that question on me. That's not a question I'd ask Bruce Arena. Um, you mentioned uh, Edgar Castillo and uh, I, uh, Jake, I noticed that you want a committee there at left back. So I'm going to lead into our next question here. Uh, Mohamed Hussein asks us, felt Castillo was poor. Do you think he's gone at the end of the season? And uh, in his opinion, Jones is a better left back than Castillo, or, or sorry, Jones is a better left back than Castillo if he plays more of it and learns his, the position. He thinks Jones will be a better left back than Castillo. Do you think he can be a serviceable left back instead of shopping for one and getting one uh, in the transfer window? Um, I don't know if you guys heard last week's episode, but we had like seven questions about Edgar Castillo and how terrible he is. I missed the meeting where everyone decided that Edgar Castillo was the worst player in MLS. Uh, so... Um, I'll, I'll go to you first, Seth. Um, do you think Edgar Castillo comes back to the Revs next season? Uh, and then two, do you think that, well, you just said Edgar Castillo with his experience, you'd start him over Jones. But do you think Dewan Jones long-term is a left back? Uh, so with coming back next season, it depends on his contract, right? I mean, he's in... 250000 that's what he's making this season, and I don't know when it expires. I will say that he was on a one-year loan with Colorado with a purchase at the end of the season. Um, I don't know who spent the, the transfer fee to get him, uh, but 
he was traded to New England and somehow, you know, someone activated the transfer clause. Uh, I assume it was Colorado and kind of like a sign and trade type thing. But either way, he's making 250000 to give you a kind of a, a measuring stick. Yeah, and he's 32 years old. His birthday is in October. Um, I mean, I, I, I would say if you can get out of the contract, you probably try to get out of the contract and you start rebuilding that back line um, the way you want it to look under Bruce Arena. Um, contracts are tricky, right? I mean, you look at Gabriel Somi, he lasted on this team for quite a while until they finally, you know, mutually agreed to part ways. I mean, Zahibo was the same thing. A lot of people looked at Zahibo and they're like, we should get rid of him. Now, of course, he's doing all right right now, but uh, that was a contract that was guaranteed for the next year. So I don't know if Edgar Castillo has a guaranteed contract. If he does, I don't know who's going to pick up that contract per se around the league. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you kind of need to start build, rebuilding that back line and give Arena the ability to do that. Um, so I, I wouldn't bring him back next year if that's a, if that's a possibility. Uh, for Jones, um, Jones is quick. Jones has some ability. Jones, what I like about Jones is that you can tell that he's confident. You know, if you listen to any interview with Jones, he has that confidence of like, yeah, this is who I am. Like, watch me do my thing, and I'm going to continue to grow as a player. And I think you want that confidence in a player. Uh, is he a left back? Maybe. I mean, that might be his best role, um, especially in a league where you you start bringing in a lot of attacking talent uh, from other places. Uh, if you're an athletic player, you could play left or right back. You might have a longer career in this league. I mean, you think about you know how long Donnie Smith lasted in this uh, this this team because he converted to an outside back. You think about you know Brandon By probably getting more minutes than he would have gotten by you know moving to right back. So it might be a better plan for his long term development and his to stay in MLS to play as a left or right back. Uh, but I'm not necessarily sure if he'll ever hit. Uh, you know, the heights of an MLS all-star or best 11 type of player playing that position. Jake, what are your thoughts on the left-back controversy? You know, I I think Edgar Castillo is another guy where I look and I say, listen, I don't hate Edgar Castillo. I might hate his contract. Uh, If Edgar Edgar Castillo and and Juan Jones next year are still the platooned left-back of the New England Revolution that's still a better thing than what we had in 2018, which was a dismal freaking mess. And I'm okay with that. Um, there's only so much money you can throw at every position. At some point, you have to pick and choose a spot that is going to be... Listen, I got an MLS vet, and I got a first-round rookie. I'm spending maybe a little over 300000 at that spot for the entire roster. You know what? Perfectly fine. Um, I think both guys are fine. If you want to ride the hot hand... You want to platoon them, make sure that everyone's rested. Maybe ride, you know, Edgar for certain matchups against more veteran teams. Maybe against the bad teams, you let Jones and his speed, you know, cause trouble. Um, I also don't have a problem if you're subbing them off, you know, 70 minutes, you know, 20 minutes at the end. I'm perfectly okay with whatever scenario that we can think of. Um, Before the season, or or not so much before the season, uh, in the middle of the season when the team was bad and Edgar Castillo was getting burned because... You know, we didn't know these things called tactics because Brad Friedel. Um, yes, it, it certainly seemed a lot worse. Um, but Edgar Castillo was probably one of the other players that's benefited a lot because he probably knows Bruce Arena. Uh, he probably got at least some minutes, um, uh, not so much with the U.S. national team, but Bruce Arena would be far more familiar with him in the U.S. team setup and can figure out ways how to make him effective. And in theory, 
pass that knowledge along to, to Jones. Um, you know, I, I'd be perfectly fine if Castillo is back next year. Um, but unless, like, unless you're going to go and make a killer signing um, that would be in the TAM range, then you'd have to probably let Edgar Castillo go. Yeah, and, and a lot of people, I, I, I mean, anytime Edgar Castillo is in the lineup, I don't know if you look at the Revs uh, mentions, I mean, people are outraged. Uh, and, and last week we had a question if Castillo was as bad as Somi. Um, you know, I, I think Sean and I are a little nicer to Castillo than uh, a lot of Revs Twitter. So um, I'm just going to throw out a couple stats to kind of make the argument that Castillo is, I would say at very least on par with Dewan Jones. I have not seen enough to, to definitively say Dewan Jones is a better left back than Edgar Castillo. So here's my statistical defense uh, tackles. Edgar Castillo is 53 for 84 this season. That's 63.1%. Not a, not great for a left back. I'm not defending. I'm not saying he's a great defensive player. Uh, for comparison, Brandon Bay is 32 for 46 at 69.6%. Dewan Jones is 9 for 23 at 39%. Uh, interceptions, Castillo 1.7 per 90 minutes. That's tied for the team lead. Obviously, he intercepts a lot of passes in the attacking half. Bay and Jones are at 1.2. Um, clearances, Castillo 1.5, Jones 1.3, Brandon Bay has three clearances um, per 90 minutes. And then pass completion, Castillo is 72.4%, Jones 73.4%, and Bay is at 66.7%. So statistically, I, I feel like Castillo and Jones are, are a little bit comparable. I understand that Castillo did get burned a lot, as you said, uh, uh, Jake, at the beginning of the season. I think that was more Friedel's tactics than anything else. Um, and I will say that the two biggest chances from the Whitecaps on Wednesday uh, came when Dewan Jones was left one on one, and there was a low cross across uh, through the box. So um, I, I agree with you guys. I don't think Edgar Castillo is coming back. If there's an option at two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, I don't think that option is exercised. Maybe he comes back on a smaller salary. He is getting up there a little bit in age. Um, but if it's a guaranteed salary, he might be coming back, and maybe he's going to be um, kind of put into a rotational piece. Um, and and I I think Dewan Jones is certainly very athletic. Um, and I would say kind of push him up to the wing, but they're so they have so much depth there. I'm not totally sure what the the long term. I I think I think you ha- you would you would address if you're going to leave Andrew Farrell at center back, you would address you would address right back and a starter above by. Then you would go and find a left back first. Your left back situation right now is not awful. Um, if Brandon if uh, if Brandon Bias is starting right back and Andrew Farrell is starting center back, your right back situation is a problem. Uh, in the grand scheme of things on the roster. I'm looking forward to the feedback on us, our, our semi-defensive Castillo. It's a very dangerous, it's David Price territory uh, for Revs fans. I'm surprised that, uh, I think that before the show started, Greg, you were saying that Castillo should be at the All-Star game, right? I, I mean, I can make a argument for it. I mean, he can cross the ball. Are there any pullbacks on the MLS All-Star roster? Did, did they? I thought, I thought fullbacks weren't allowed. I thought it was only center back. Maybe they're like the Revs and they just take wingers and they put them back at uh, at fullback. I, I'm not sure. I bet Wayne. Listen, I bet Wayne Rooney can play fullback just fine. Just gonna throw that out there. I did find it interesting too that the Revs' strategy was to get wingbacks crossing the ball, and they had Edgar Castillo on the bench on Wednesday. I mean, talk about the one thing Edgar Castillo can do better. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, and it is interesting too that there's so much hate, and you know, on the Fourth of July, Edgar Castillo had his best game of the season. So um, I don't know. I, I'm not as harsh on him as a lot of people, but. 
uh, moving along here, um, Zachary Grimes asks us, realistically, what are now the goals of the team? Getting a high seed is what I think has to be the goal. Uh, Christopher Velikas says, uh, I'm loving the streak, but I'm finding, I find myself wondering what is the ceiling for this group? Uh, and then uh, Bent Musket Matt, one of your writers over there, Seth, uh, for the Bent Musket, says, how many points do you project for the team? Uh, he says, if there's not numbers, if you, you don't want to give a number, because that involves math, and we're not math guys. Um, give a best-case scenario in terms of seeding. Oh, maybe you are a math guy, Jake. Jeez, I didn't mean I, I can't do I that was, with my head. I don't even I know how many games are left. No math. I was told there would be no math. No, um Well well let's go here, Jake. I'll start with you. What do you think is the uh what are your goals and what is your best case scenario for the team? And I'll and I'll preface this by saying that five thirty eight gives the Revs a forty nine percent chance of making the playoffs as of right now. So I, I wanna say a month ago when we started having like the initial how the heck do the Revs make the playoffs? There were two options pretty much do what they're doing now, which is never lose. Or, and this also happened, we need a team to drop back to the pack. Now, that ended up, ended up being Montreal, which we thought was going to happen without Piotti. They are eventually going to get him back. However, on points per game right now, the Revolution are in six in the conference. Uh, they have a game in hand on Montreal. They're tied on points. I still don't see points per game right now in New England getting up into, like, the, I think, like, D.C. and, and New York at, like, 1.5. Uh, kind of sort of range, I think that would be an obtainable goal, and that would be, that gets you a playoff spot. Uh, do I think it gets you a home game in the East? No. I still think the best spot you're looking at, like, listen, you're in the playoffs, but you're going on the road. If New England does get up as high as the fourth seed, which is, again, not unobtainable, they're only four points behind the Red Bulls right now, they're in fourth, uh, just not on points per game, just on points, um, that would be something where, you know, would you take the Red Bulls at home in a 4-5 game in the East in the first round uh, from where they were two months ago? Hell, I'd take the seventh seed against Atlanta just because we're there. Um, but now as, as, as New England continues this unbeaten run and the playoffs go from more of a long-shot pipe dream to, no, 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 maybe this is actually going to be a thing, and not only are the Revolution going to be in the playoffs, the Revolution are going to be a problem in the playoffs because this is a different team that, that started the year considerably. Um, and I, I think the, the more New England goes up the standings, the more you look at doesn't matter who they're playing or where they're playing, it's going to be this is a problem for whoever is in front of us. And I didn't think that was going to be something that would happen this year. Maybe an outside chance that happens in 2020, but you're really looking, you know, two, three years down the road in the Bruce Arena timeline of, okay, the Revs are here, and the Revs are here to not just be in the playoffs, but to be in the Eastern Conference Final and to be, you know, competing for MLS Cup um, if that was the, the goal of the turnaround. The fact that we're, we're probably a year early on, that, on this conversation uh, is a tremendous positive. Yeah, I, I think that you're probably looking at Best case scenario, grabbing like six or seven seed, making some noise in the playoffs, getting fans excited to, so that they renew their season tickets for next year, and then just evaluating the roster and, and letting Bruce Arena have his uh, have his own team next year and, and hopefully making that the year. Do they make the playoffs? I think right now they have a good chance of you know being a seven seed and maybe doing something in the playoffs. Uh, but I could also see a situation where they fall just a little bit short, um, and that would be okay. I mean, I think that Arena... Yeah. You know, was dealt a pretty bad hand here, and that's what he's going to be working with. 
Yeah, I think the goals right now is maybe a five-ish seed. I, I don't know how much more. We, we talked about this a little bit last week about who we see dropping. The Revs would have to kind of keep up their pace to get uh, a home uh, a home playoff game, and that, that's possible. But uh, right now, realistically, I'm looking at uh, five, six seed uh, as the goal. So, uh, Seth, any thoughts on that? Uh, no, I'm all set. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> This is what happens when you, you mess in the Skype chess. Yeah, for those at home that can't see, I just said, let me let me mention Larry Jackson in the uh, Skype chat, which I had no intention of actually doing. <laughs> um, Christopher Velukas also says, um, hopefully I'm not butchering that name horribly, but um, sorry, sorry, Chris, if that's the case. Um, also, if a second player is coming this window, would it be more wise for Bruce to bring in a depth piece over a surefire starter? Uh, Seth, I'll come to you in a second, but I, I wanted to also uh, preface this by saying that Arena has kind of hinted that it's probably not going to be a designated player. Um, if there is going to be a designated player, kind of expect one in the offseason, not so much this window. So he, he's kind of tipped his hand um, that even though they're looking to bring in some players, it might not be a big acquisition. Uh, but it, do you think that is the correct call to make? Yeah, I think I think that was great that Bo came in. That was someone that he scouted and, and knew ahead of time that he was going to be a difference maker in this league and got that deal done very, very quickly. I think at this point, it'd be great if Bruce Arena can get a trade within MLS. Think about trading uh, a player for a center back or a right back or a left back who is an MLS known commodity, maybe someone that Arena already knows. Um, and that can you know contribute some minutes down the stretch right here. That's what I really expect for the rest of the season, which I'm totally okay with because we've seen way too many times a Mancian or a Dielna or you know even a Nemeth, who's I think a pretty good player, just never really fit in here. Uh, or on the worst side of things, uh, Machado or a um, or Hache come in uh, and not really have any any talent. They all can't be Larry Jacksons, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Yeah, I'm with Seth. I, I think all you need right now is either um, either either a trade for a depth piece, um, uh, probably on the back line. Um, for me, I, I would I would look at figuring out a way he, how to either improve a direct right back um, and and have Brandon By come off the bench, or or find another center back um, so that you can you have you can put Farrell back in his, in his normal spot. Those are really the only two positions I think you'd be looking at. It's either going to be a right back or a center back. Uh, maybe you can find another utility player uh, similar to Anababa and just sort of say, like, listen, this is what we have. This is this is our da- our back line, and it's still a thousand times better than what it was at the start of the year just because they know how to play soccer again. So, Yeah, and, uh, you know, I don't I, I know I've answered this question a few weeks ago uh, when we talked about Thomas Vermaelen, um, and we said, you know, if you bring in a third DP now, you know, you've committed to heal multiple years, you've committed to bow multiple years. So if you bring in another DP, even if it's for two years, you're really restricting yourself in terms of flexibility. Um, so um, yeah, I, I certainly don't think a DP signing is wise at this point. I, I think they can kind of tweak their weaknesses, which is along the back line through trades in, in MLS or, you know, there, there are some other ways to uh, kind of go about um, uh, fixing the, the, the last few pieces. I don't think a big splash signing is necessary. It would be great as a selfish short-term thing, but I, I don't think it's really necessary. Um, Bo is the GOAT, uh, asks us, uh, do you think Teal's confidence will still be up despite not scoring in this game? I thought he was fantastic. Uh, and I'll tackle this one first. You guys can can jump in if you disagree with me, but I think he answered his own question there. Teal had a really good game, hit the bar, uh, forced a really nice save from the Cincinnati keeper. Um, he did have that one play at the beginning where uh, Seth, you referenced this play earlier, by had a low cross uh, through the six-yard box. Teal kind of 
touched it, got a tip on it, but he didn't get all of it, and it kind of you know skirted off his foot and out of bounds. Um, but he was still very dangerous. Uh, he still had a, some some big chances in that game. Uh, I don't see any reason why his confidence would be down. Any disagreements? No, I think he, I think he's fine. He's, you're gonna continue to start him, and then uh, if he goes through a big stretch, then you put him on the bench. But I think his confidence will be fine. Uh, Paul Gerard asks us: The Revs didn't concede any goals in the last 15 minutes in either game, but they did look suspect at times. Uh, how can they fix this? Uh, Jake, I'll go with you. Any tweaks in the last 15 minutes that you want to see? No, I just you, you know I I think I said earlier in in after during the Cincinnati game, like I, I actually like both subs from from Marina. Maybe you know timing could be a smidge earlier. Um, but Diego was playing so well, it doesn't matter. You know, I, I look at this is the other sort of growing pain of this is the team that has struggled to close out games um, for a number of reasons, most of them probably tactically. Um, and now I think Bruce Rainer just needs to give them the confidence, just, you know, just keep playing soccer. Uh, that's how you closed out Vancouver. You kept playing soccer, and eventually the final 10 minutes, um, you, you willed them down. You, you scored not once, but three times. Um, Cincinnati, they did the plan a little bit better. I would have preferred a third goal, but Cincinnati was so lackluster, it was fine. Um, this is a team that needs to discover how to close out games. You start doing it against bad teams, then you start doing it against mediocre teams. Now you can start doing it against good teams and consistently get points in this league. Yeah, I agree. Uh, keep playing soccer. I think especially uh, um, late in the game, oftentimes if a team is down a goal, they try to use the wide areas to throw in crosses. But with the revolution uh, having so many attackers, if you continue to play soccer higher up the field, that's going to pin back the left and right back, which is going to prevent them from getting forward and whipping in those crosses. So I feel more confident about the revolution team when they're on the attacking third as opposed to like sitting all the way back and, and trying to get into a defensive shell. So keep playing soccer and score some goals. And Seth, I'll, I'll go to you too. This is another end game uh, kind of situation, uh, but the Revs did not use a third sub. Uh, Dave Aikman wants to know why no third sub against Cincinnati. Uh, I mean, it worked, right? I mean, uh, I'm not exactly sure why why we didn't see another sub. It's just kind of Bruce Arena uh, thinking about you know who he wants to put on that given day. So I'm looking at the the substitutions right now. You have Brandon, uh, just sorry, Brad Knight, which is probably not going to come into the game for Matt Turner. Just can't imagine that. Jalili Bob is an interesting one. Yeah, we have seen him come in late in games and, you know, going to a, a five-man back line. I kind of like that move because he is a, he is kind of an emergency defender who can block shots and, and, you know, put his body on the line. So that's a possibility right there. But as Jake mentioned, uh, we want to see the Reds play soccer, you know, and, and go at them other teams. So do you really want to bring in another center back and kind of see things out that way? Maybe not. Dewan Jones, uh, yeah, maybe bring him on for pace, but he's been playing more of a left back. Uh, so probably not him. Justin Runnicks or, or Tejon Buchanan, those are probably the guys you might want to bring on and say, dude, go out there for five minutes and just run at people and make things happen. Um, so, yeah, maybe you, you bring one of those guys on for for a player. Um, you know, Christian Pena goes all 90. Teal Bumberg goes all 90. So, yeah, I, I would maybe like see Runnicks or Buchanan being young guys that we can kind of see how they do in those given moments. But I think – Maybe on the road, you want to just go with some experienced guys that are going to see things out and, and make sure there's no no drama in those late 15 minutes or, or whatnot. Yeah, I think the, these particular two games, because you're playing twice midweek um, and the weather was not exactly you know fun, at least for definitely for the New England game um, at home, 
yeah, you you want to you want to try you want to use that third sub just to get someone off the field for just ten minutes. Um, I think I think uh, Seth hit it right on the head. You just you tell Renex or Buchanan, listen, just go in for Pineda, go in on the wing, go in up top, and just go find the ball. If the ball's on, in the attacking half, go find it. Go piss someone off for six minutes um, or ten minutes and and do that. Um, and, and you know we've we've seen I think Buchanan in particular be very effective at that. Um, and this would have been a perfect game, I think, to uh, to use him in that spot just to save the legs of either a Bunbury or a Pania or a Gill. Um, you know, and I was surprised that Bo started this game because, you know, coming in, you know, played midweek, I would have kept him on the bench and brought him on if you needed him uh, for the Cincinnati game. Uh, Caicedo came in and closed out. I think did really well. Scott Caldwell, if he's going to be the, uh, the, you know, the closer, that's great. I wish we can get him to start, but I have no problem. Scott Caldwell is playing 15, 20 minutes and completing, you know, 95% of his passes at the end of the game and uh, keeping the pace slow and everything else uh, working. So that uh, could be a perfect role for him. And I think we're going to find other roles for, for guys, uh, if they're not starting, what role they have off the bench, uh, given given the game situations. Yeah, I, I just don't think there was a sub to kind of come in, unless it was someone to save legs. But defensively, I don't think there was a whole lot Bruce could use the bench for to kind of shift pieces around. So um, moving on, uh, Jake. This one's coming to you. I don't think Seth has any input. I certainly don't have any input. So this is all you, Jake. And, and we were actually talking about this uh, unrelated before you even knew this question was coming. But Craft soap, soap Connoisseur wants to know Magic the Gathering or Dungeons & Dragons? I will say this. I do not hate Magic the Gathering. I, in fact, attempted to play Hearthstone a couple of years ago. Um, I am just not physically capable or creative enough to build a deck. You give me the deck and tell me how to play it. That's perfectly fine. Give me a D and D character. Let me mess with it. Uh, I'm trying to mess with one right now. A fighter necromancer combo. It's not working out well. Why? The same reason I can't build a deck. I'm not good at these things. You give me something and tell me how to use it. I'm actually a lot better. That's how my brain works. Um, but D and D all the way. Shout out Hawkwood Games, Milford, Connecticut, Elm City Games, New Haven, Connecticut. Can we go back to talking soccer? <laughs> yeah, we can go back to talking soccer. And on that Elm City Express, I believe they were the 2016 or 2017 uh, national NPSL champions, Jake? That would be 2017. I have the jersey in my closet. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I knew he knew off the top of his head. Uh, Gustavo Bo is the best striker. Asks us, will the Revs ever lose again? Seth, yes, no. Are the Revs ever going to lose again in the history of their existence? Don't you guys feel bad for people that just became Revs fans and they're just like, well, I actually don't feel bad for them. But like, they're just like, wow, this team's amazing. Like, they, I don't understand why they don't have a downtown stadium. And, and then you have to tell about all the championships they've lost and all the, the different situations and, and the, the era that was Brad Friedel. Um, you know, the, the poor little kids that are just seeing the, not going through all the heartache that we, we have seen year after year. Uh, I, will the Revs ever lose again? Maybe. Who knows? Tune in next week. Jake, yes, no. Are they ever going to lose again? I mean, there is still somewhere. Uh, there are there are seven and eight year olds who have never seen the UConn women lose an American Athletic Conference basketball game. Uh, it's entirely possible that 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 New England uh, will will never lose a, a game again. It's also entirely possible uh, they're going to lose out the rest of of the year. Uh, MLS is dumb. The rules are made up, and the points at the end of the day technically don't matter. But we have playoffs and stuff anyway. Um, no, I have no idea. It, it, listen, this has been a, a tremendously fun ride. Um, the first two months added about 10 years to all of our lives, and we're now trying to slowly recoup that. 
uh, back uh, as the Bruce Arena era begins. And uh, just listen, as long as as long as this season lasts, as long as this wave lasts, let's just enjoy it. And I will say, I I was going to twist it into a uh, alternative question, a serious question of who will lose next, the Patriots or the Revs, uh, but. Uh, they have uh, at Seattle on August 10th, at New York Red Bulls August 17th. I think those will be two difficult games if they make it past uh, LAFC, which I, I think there's a decent chance. It's a home game. It's a cross-country game for LAFC. I think the Revs will give them a bit of a battle. That'll be a, that'll be a very fun litmus test. Uh, I think it's in a few weeks, right? Yeah, two weeks from now. Oh, yeah, that's that'll, that might be a fun litmus test to figure out uh, where this team is. Yeah, and they'll lose 4 nothing now that I've overlooked uh, Orlando <laughs> FC. Uh, we did get one last uh, quick listener question. This is from Sean Donahue. Uh, is Carlos Hill going to need a rest at some point? Guy has basically played every minute for the Revs and hasn't had time off since last July, going right from playing competitive games in Spain to Revs preseason. You guys worried about uh, resting Carlos Hill, or is Sean just being paranoid? Uh, I'll go to you first, Jake. I Listen, I, I don't think that, that Sean's being paranoid. I think, yes, at some point he, you're, you're going to have to you're going to have to give him a few minutes off uh, at least. You know, I know he started every single game. I think he's only been subbed off something like twice. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, at some point, yes, he's going to need a break, whether that's uh, maybe uh, Diego with a spot start in the middle, maybe Agudelo a spot start at the 10. The, you know, the Revolutionary in a far more comfortable place now where I could say, listen, yes, Carlos Gill in a home game against someone terrible, keep him on the bench. Use him only in emergencies, um, and and maybe that's twice for the rest of the year. Maybe he only starts ten out of the remaining uh, twelve games, uh, and that, that again, perfectly fine. If you think this is an actual playoff team, you're going to need Carlos Gill in the playoffs. You're going to need Gustavo Bo in the playoffs. You're going to need Pania and Bunbury and everyone uh, healthy uh, in the playoffs to compete. So yeah, I, I I would not have a problem if Gill gets a significant breather at some point uh, during this season. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I also just add, though, that I think that he is the type of player who wants to be on the field all the time. Uh, he wears the captain armband now. If you follow him on Instagram, he's always you know taking those pictures after the, the game, saying how much he believes in the team. Um, so I think he wants to be on the field as much as possible. It will probably be Bruce Aruna who has to sit him down and say, ah, dude, why don't you take this one off? Yeah, and, and I agree with everything you said. I, I think you might sit one or two ga- games down the stretch, but, um, you know, the Revs are in the playoff uh, battle, so I, I think they're going to ride him out. He's going to have to suit up, and, and he doesn't seem to ever slow down. So um, he seems pretty durable. He's out there. He runs the most. He seems to get the most touches in almost every game. No. So, Well, you know, I mean, it, it sounds silly, but, I mean, listen, this Saturday, you know, home in Orlando on a crummy field, uh, grass on top of turf, might not be a bad time to test out that theory and give a few guys a break. They're going to lose 3 nothing now that I've jinxed them anyway, so that's <laughs> not a bad idea. Orlando is pants and they know it. Let's. Uh, we're almost at 90 minutes. I said this was going to be an hour. I'm going over again. It's just so much fun talking about the Revs and Larry Jackson. But uh, Seth, do you have any shout-outs or final thoughts uh, before we wrap it up here? Yeah, quick shout-out. Um... Larry Jackson is celebrating the one-week anniversary of being named as the assistant coach of the Oakland Roots. Uh, he's also in contention to have uh, some minutes in goal. So big uh, big congratulations to Larry Jackson, uh, friend of the pod, uh, for his new role. Jake, uh, you, you, uh, you want to try to follow that one up? I Do we have to like buy him a jersey now and figure out how to get it signed? Because I feel like this is... This is this is becoming a little overboard. 
I mean, yeah, and I'm the guy who this is not this is not on your level of UConn women basketball. Though. No, that's it's not. Thing. I mean, that's what I mean. Like, even even I think this is starting to be excessive. I just want everyone who listens to this podcast to uh, tweet, uh, send fan mail, whatever it is to Larry Jackson, and let him know how often he was mentioned in this podcast. Uh, and I think that would make my my life as a journalist uh, complete. You know, we haven't since we've rebooted Revolution Recap. We haven't done any player interviews. So, I mean, if you if people actually tweet or send mail to Larry Jackson, at a little PS, you you should go on Revolution Recap. Um, I'll wrap it up. Uh, I'm going to go off soccer, uh, soccer really quick in my final thoughts. Yesterday, I'm, I'm a day late on this one, but yesterday marked the 30th anniversary of a true classic in cinema, uh, comedic genius, um, one of the greatest movies of all time, and certainly of my youth. I am, of course, talking about UHF, starring Weird Al Yankovic oh, yeah. and <laughs> Victoria Jackson and uh, pre-Kramer Michael Richards. Uh, if you have not seen it, I recommend it. It is a cult classic, and you will be quoting the Spatula City commercial for years to come. Um, guys, give us your Twitter handle. Uh, Jake, uh, I'll start with you. Uh, at jcatanese43, you can find myself and Seth at the Bent Musket and bentmusket.com. Um, I went on vacation last week. And I sort of didn't finish up my Gold Cup stuff. I might do that this week if I'm not sleeping all day. I haven't figured that out yet. I'm uh, Seth at 31. Please follow me. <laughs> and uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap. Uh, and I wish I had Larry Jackson's Twitter account. I don't. You guys will have to do that one on your Listen, own. But... If Seth doesn't have it right now, I'm going to be upset. And he definitely he's Googled Larry Jackson in the middle of this podcast. <laughs> I think that you'd have to go through the Oakland roots. Like, I honestly believe that someone needs to hunt down Larry Jackson for me. And uh, we can get an interview with him on the podcast. So that's my call for you guys because he's not on Twitter. So find a way. That's, our, that's the homework for the listeners this week. So, uh, And also your homework is to follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap. And also follow the Bent Musket on Twitter. I think at the Bent Musket. I'm not so sure, but yep. maybe. Sure. Okay. Uh, and also like our Revolution Recap page on Facebook. Uh, also, please leave us a review on iTunes. We haven't gotten one of those in a while, so just saying come on guys pick it up uh or wherever you're listening of course if you don't have itunes uh the revs look to pull a spinal tap next week and turn their unbeaten streak to 11 as they host orlando city at home as previously mentioned uh we have a bye week next weekend but we'll be back with a new episode after the lafc game in two weeks until then thank you everyone for listening and go revs